and then I'll read it, and then we'll pray. James chapter 3, verse 1, which is a very intimidating verse, and then we'll move on. Verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. And look at ships also, though they are so large, are driven by strong winds. And they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and is set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird and reptile, sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine bear bear figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works by the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness. For those sown in peace by those who make peace. Let's pray. Lord, we are um, so, just even reading that, so probably convicted by this chapter of Scripture. And we know, Lord, we know that our mouths are just a mess. We know that we say things that we think we don't mean, but we know they come down deep from our soul. We say words that we cannot take back. Things, divorces happen through words estranged parents and kids happen because of words. Friendships lost because of words. And so, Lord, these things that we're reading in James aren't, it's not like anything new, and we know we have to watch our mouths. But I pray that as we look upon your word this morning, it would be a reality to us. It would be more real to us. It would be in vivid color that we see ourselves and our need for Jesus. And so would you show us Jesus this morning, Lord? We want to see Jesus. We ask that you would touch our hearts and our tongues by the power of your Holy Spirit. Would you touch mine, Lord? Would you anoint my mind and my heart and my mouth to proclaim the praises and the word of God? I need your help, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we've been jetting through James, this book of James, and it's fitting that we're jetting through it because James is this book of action. It's like this book of action and imperatives that reads more like a sermon than a letter, really. 
There's more imperatives in this book than any other New Testament book. There's 40 or 54 imperatives in this book, meaning you have to do this. Now, it's not like it might not be anything new. We're, 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 let's say, tame your tongue. You're like, oh, I've heard that before. Watch your words. We've heard that. We've heard this chapter before. And we've read the book of James. Sometimes when you want a good shot in the arm or slap in the face or kick in the pants, you might turn to the book of James. Like, I got 15 minutes. I want something to rock my world. James. James will in like a sentence. James will in like a, a chapter. He will, the way he does it, he just goes through these, these series of just slapping everybody like ninja slaps, really fast, really to the point. Things you know, things you know are real. Things you know that in your life that your mom maybe taught you, wisdom. But he has a way of saying it that like just catches you off guard. Like chapter one, we know that we will suffer. But what James says is count it all joy when you suffer. And we're like, whoa, wait, count it all joy when I suffer? How about I just go through it and just get by with suffering? No, be happy. Count it all joy. Let the joy and the root of joy go down deep in your heart that when you go through trials, it makes you better. And then he says, you believe in God? And we're like, well, yeah, we believe in God. Good. So do demons. So what? He bait and switches. He brings you in like that. And he asks, oh, brother, you know, does the salt water and fresh water come out of the same spring? And he asks all these really pointed questions like your faith. You have faith. You say you have faith. Yes, I say I have faith. Well, if you're not backing that up with works, your faith is actually dead. Or like we'll read today, your tongue is a fire and it was lit by hell. Oh, whoa. Calm down, James. I mean, <laughs> Seriously. It's, he's intense. He's like a preacher. He's like a very, very good preacher. He also uses these wonderful parables like Jesus does. He connects the physical to the spiritual in a, in a way that like Jesus did. Like when Jesus would teach, I love reading the Gospels, and seeing Jesus teach and saying things like the kingdom of God is like a seed. You're like, a seed? Well, don't you mean the kingdom of God is like a hammer? Like, no, a seed. You mean the kingdom of God is like a tidal wave, right? Or like a fighting army. No, the kingdom of God is like a little seed that is vulnerable to elements, that has the source, the power of life within it, and when it's buried in the right soil, it lies dormant for a while, and you don't know what's going on. And then all of a sudden, boom, a stalk, and then a head, and then a harvest. The kingdom of God is like that. And then you're like, oh, I get it. And James does this beautifully in chapter 3. He says in chapter 3, that your tongue is like bits and horses' mouths, great ships and little rudders, sparks and forest fires, taming wild animals, fresh and salt water spring, fruit trees, all in just 10 verses. It's like breathtaking. James paints this beautiful, vivid picture of the power of our tongues. And what James is getting at in his book is this is what a life looks like that has been transformed, has been changed by the gospel of Jesus. That is what he's saying in this book. This is the life. This is what your life will look like if the gospel goes down deep into your soul and into your heart. When you've seen the gospel and embraced the gospel and applied the gospel, this is what your life will look like practically. This is what a gospel-driven, shaped, formed life looks like practically. And this is how faith in Jesus should be lived out in the world and use this word again again and again and again, cosmos. This is how your faith in Christ is lived out in the world. And what James is saying here in chapter 3 is that the tongue, this little tiny member of your body, holds a key place in holy living. Your mouth, your tongue, your words hold a key place to godly living. Why? 
Because if you look at your tongue, if you look at your words, you can see what's going on deep down in your heart. If you just looked at your words, it reveals your heart. And so this is how we'll look at this chapter. The power of words, the evil of our words, the source of our words, and the wisdom to change. So that's how we'll kind of break up this this chapter. So the first point, the power of our words. Our words have extreme power. Your words have extreme power. You know the dumbest nursery rhyme, or I don't even know if it's a nursery rhyme. It's like a kid's rhyme that we can tell our kids. Like It's the biggest lie. We knew it was a lie when it was being taught to us, and we just kind of perpetrate the lie as we pass it on to the next generation. Sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt me. That's such a lie. And the, fact, and the funny, ironic thing is it's a lie trying to combat other lies. It's like my, uh, my, my, someone in my, my school just said this about me. And your mom's like, that's a lie. Sticks and stones can break your bones, but words will never hurt you. You're like, but why does it hurt so bad? Why does my soul hurt? It's better said, sticks and stones could break your bones, but words can damage your soul, cost thousands of dollars in therapy, and ruin families. That's the truth. Words destroy you. Words have that, some, that sort of power. Some of my favorite memories have to do with words. Exchanging words, listening to great words of wisdom. Or like when I heard my wife for the very first time tell me that she loved me. Now, again, I w- we were in high school, so she probably didn't know what she meant. But it was awesome. I remember we were on the phone, and she's like, Dave, um, I, um, I-, I think I love you. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do I do? Say something good. Say something brilliant and smart and winsome. Um, Ash, I, I like you a lot too. <laughs> Crushed her. Don't feel that sad. We're married now. So, <laughs> Our words have this power to where some of my, your greatest moments can be wrapped around words, but some of your worst moments can be also wrapped around. Some of my worst memories have to do with words. Some of the most horrible moments of my life are moments surrounding words that are seared into my mind. And some of you are carrying around with you and in your relationships and into your marriage and into your family baggage and self-image problems because you can still remember things that have been said about your body or about your character or about your lack of money or education or the way that you talk. And these words, even... Even though there's great distance between those words and now, even time, those words are still controlling you. Because words have power. They have power because your tongue, James says, is like a bit in a horse's mouth. It can control the entire animal. Because the tongue is like a small rudder telling a huge ship where to go. Because like a small spark, it can start a raging, destructive fire. Because one teacher through his words, can lead and steer an entire congregation. And therefore, those who teach will be judged with, stricter, with greater strictness, and rightly so. So the words from our tongue, though small, have a power to control, the power to direct, and the power to destroy. Your words have a power to control like a bit in a horse's mouth, or direct like a rudder with a ship, or destroy like a fire in a forest. Our tongue has an influence way out of proportion to its size. It's small, but it boasts these great, huge things, like verse 5 says. The tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. It has great power. 
How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. Or maybe your translation says such a small spark. The thing about a fire, even though with all our modern, modern ingenuity and all our modern technology, a forest fire is still massively destructive. When a fire or a fire department or a forest service gauges how far along they are in putting out a fire, they speak of containment. We have it 10% contained. We have it 30% contained. You know this. You live in Southern California. Fires have ravaged around here. And when they speak of fires, you're like, oh, it's 20% contained. You're like, well, can't you just put it out? Don't you have like helicopters and planes and people that parachute in the middle of the fire to put it out? Like, no, we can only try to contain it. And if it starts to take over your house, we move on to contain it and move on to, to contain it somewhere else. We can't put it out. We can only contain it. Even with all our modern technology, that is our words, James is saying. Your words, once you say your word, it goes out and you can't take it back. It goes out and it's going to destroy what it's going to destroy. You can try to contain it, but it will have its work. That's what words do. That's the kind of power words have. Your mouth and the power of your words is like an uncontrollable fire that has to run its course. Words have a power that are irretrievable once they are said. Have you ever tried to say something to somebody and you know it was dumb and the very second you said it, you're like, oh my gosh, um, I didn't mean that. I take it back. They're never like, oh yeah, that's cool. No, that's fine. I mean, it wounds them. They're like, ah, uh, that hurt me. Proverbs says this in chapter 12. There, are, there is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts. It's like if you're sitting next to your friend in the car and you just get a dagger and you just shove it into his like, side. You're like, boom, out. Hey, the sword's gone, dude. Look, sword's out now. Like, but I'm still cut. Like, it's just a flesh wound. You cut me. That's what words do. They go in. You're like, okay, I take it back. Well, the damage is already done. It's like a sword thrust. Once the sword goes in, the damage is done. An ancient rabbi, ancient rabbis had this saying about evil words. And it was this, that evil words kill three people. The one speaking, the one spoken to, and the one spoken of. When you use your words, it has the potential to kill three people. Kill you, kill the person you're speaking to, and kill the person you're speaking of. Words have this sort of power. And why do words have this sort of power? Genesis chapter 1. How did God create the world? It says, God said, let there be light. God said, God said, God said. He created this world through his word. Hebrews chapter 11 says this. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. The universe was created by God just saying and speaking and it becoming a reality. So that what is seen is not made out of things that are visible. Think of that for a second. Everything that you see wasn't made out of things that are visible. They were made out of God's word. Words create reality. That's the power of words. And you and I were created in the image of God. James chapter 3 verse 9 will say that. And our words also have the power to create. You can create a reality in somebody's mind by your words. You can destroy somebody by your words. I live in a city where there's a, where there's a large population that have been shaped by words, words from the church, words from parents. I've sat with three different people this week 
that are totally destroyed by things their dad said to them when they were young. Destroyed. You can destroy with words. You can also give life with words. You speak encouragement into somebody's life. You give them life. Frederick, Frederick um, Beekner said this, and if you haven't read any Beekner, you should. He's a wonderful storyteller. And he says this. This, I suppose, is the final mystery as well as the final power of words. That not even across great distances of time and space do words ever lose their capacity for becoming incarnate. You can have been destroyed by your parents and move four states over and be separated by 15 to 20 years and the words that they spoke to you have a way of becoming life again when you remember them like that. When you remember something said to you, or you remember that you said something, they have a way of taking on life again and becoming incarnate all over again. Words have this sort of power. Words have the power of life. They have the power to create reality. They have the power to shape nations. Just think of Winston Churchill and Adolf Hitler. Words have the power to shape and mold and change minds of nations. Also, your self-image, your children, your friends, Words have this sort of power. And because words have this sort of power, James will break from simile. He'll break from saying like. Like, your tongue is like a bit and like a rudder and like a spark. And he goes with a straightforward metaphor. Look at verse 6. And the tongue is a fire. It's not just like a bit anymore. And it's just not like a rudder anymore. But it is actually a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Okay, James just drops this bomb. Your tongue is on fire, and who lit it was hell. For every beast and bird and reptile of sea and creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless, evil, full of deadly poison. Now James will now shift and go, your words aren't just powerful, your words are actually evil. We see here the evil of our words. The words that we speak naturally have this posture. Words that we speak naturally have a posture of being anti-God and pro-Satan. Anti-God and pro-Satan, here's how. James says that the tongue is a world of unrighteousness. Cosmos, a world of unrighteousness. And this world is anti-God. Your tongue is naturally anti-God. And then, not just that, James says the tongue is set on fire by hell, where your tongue becomes an instrument of Satan. Your tongue, naturally speaking, is anti-God and pro-Satan. Remember Mark chapter 8? In the Gospels, when Jesus was walking with his disciples, and he says, who do the people say that I am? And they start giving all these answers. And he goes, well, who do you? And the very most important question you can ever ask yourself or can be asked to us by God, who do you say that I, Jesus, am? And Peter speaks up. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Very well, Peter, Jesus says. Flesh and blood did not reveal that to you, but it came from above. It came from my father in heaven. It was your, your tongue was just touched by heaven, by above. Now I'm going to the cross. And Peter's like, okay, Jesus, come here, come here. Listen, bro, you can't go to the cross, okay? I mean, you're just gaining some steam. You got some momentum here, some traction. People love you. I have a sword. I got your back. They try to take you. 
I'm good. I'm really good. Just give me a chance. I got you. And then what does Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. His tongue was then, at that very moment, used as an instrument of Satan. And remember Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve sin. They realize that they're naked, and they hear God coming. So they hide from God. It's a funny trick that we try to do. And God says, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree I commanded you not to eat from? And what was the first sin face-to-face with God in the garden following the fall? The sin of speech. Uh, The woman you gave me, she gave it to me, and I ate it. It's not my fault. It's not my bad. She's beautiful and offered me something, so I said yes. And you made her. I didn't make her. I didn't even really want her. But, but you said I needed somebody. So I ate it. What? I'm a guy. I'm hungry. This first sin was a verbal sin of blame shifting and self-defense. I'm right here, God. I'm right. Didn't you not make creator? Right? Isn't she not good looking? Right? I mean, come on, right? First verbal sin. As soon as a fall enters in with our mouths. Ah, it's not me. It wasn't me. I didn't do it. Uh, it. It was not my fault. James says, the evil actually goes on. He says, it sets on fire the whole course of your life. Some of you in this room, in Ventura, are a little bit older than I am. And because you're older, you are wiser. And that's true. As you get older, you get wiser. Some things you grow out of, some dumb things that you do, some, way, some dumb ways that you think. You see the world and you become wiser. But what James says about our tongue is from the time you can put together a complete sentence to the time you get so old that it's really hard to put together a complete sentence, your whole life will be influenced by your evil tongue. Your evil tongue remains. That's why you can hang out with elementary kids. You're like, oh my gosh, your mouth is filthy. And you can hang out with like 80-year-old men. And you're like, oh my gosh, your mouth is filthy. Because they don't grow out of it. People don't grow out of a bad language, bad tongue, bad way, because it sets on fire your whole life. So is this one of those watch your speech sermons? Okay, everybody, boys and girls, watch the way you talk. Everybody, guard your mouth. Don't talk. Don't say bad things. Don't do this. Don't do that. Some of you, that might be your takeaway. Like, okay, guy, preacher guy, I will watch my mouth. You've convinced me. I will watch my mouth. Done. And you will make it maybe to the parking lot. Maybe. <laughs> or to lunch. But the second you get on the freeway or the second you drive your car, it will be done. Or the second you turn on the television and watch a game, it will be done. The second you get into some sort of argument, it will be done. You cannot do it. And if you try to do it, you're not really listening to what James is saying. Because he said in verse 2 that the tongue, which is an emblematic way, he's been using it as an emblematic way of our words, though it's a small part of the body, has great power. And if we are able to control our tongues, he says, you're perfect. If you can control your tongue, if you can control your tongue for the rest of your life, you will be perfect. Because it's so difficult. It's so hard to control our tongues. If we control our tongue, James is saying, we control our lives. Control your tongue, control your whole life. It is so difficult to control our mouths. Our tongues are so given to lies and slander, mean and smart remarks, so prone to stay open when it should remain shut, that if you're able to keep your mouth in check, you can easily keep your whole life in check. 
And that's what James is saying. So you can go home and try to do that. Go home and like, okay, I'm not going to speak anymore. I'm not going to use bad language anymore. I'm going to watch what I say. I'm going to try to control my mouth. But remember, your tongue is a restless evil. Let me translate that for you. Always liable to break out. It's like when wild animals attack. I mean, do you ever, do you have a pet? Like a dog or a cat or an ostrich? I don't know what you guys, you know, like what you have as pets. But don't you know about like pets that they're tamed and nice and cute, but they have a way of lashing out randomly? Like you'd be petting your cat and it's purring and all of a sudden it bites you. Like what, what was that? We were having a good time. Why did you have to bite me? And your cat's like, I'm an animal. That's what I do, you know? Your dog, the same thing. You're walking your dog, you're having a good, and your dog just attacks. Like you're trained. I spent thousands of dollars to train you. Don't bite. It's an animal. You can tame it, but it's still an animal. And James goes, you could tame an animal a little bit. You can't even get close to taming your tongue. Verse 7. Every beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. You know what? You want to know why we can't tame our tongues? Because the problem really isn't our tongue. That's not really the problem. James says, your words have a source. Look at verse 9. With our mouths, with our tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can salt pond yield fresh water. What James is saying here is essentially what Jesus taught in Matthew. Matthew chapter 12, this is what Jesus taught. Either make the tree and its fruit good or make the tree and its fruit bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. I love Jesus. You spawn of Satan. You, you have, you're a spawn of Satan because you have lies and evil in your heart. And that's why you speak the way you do. That's what he's saying. How can you speak good when you are evil? How do you watch your mouth when you're really evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of the good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. This is why Paul is able to say in Romans chapter 10 that if you believe in your heart that Jesus rose from the dead and confess with your mouth, you will be saved because the heart and the mouth are connected. Jesus will say and go on to say in Matthew chapter 15, he says in verse 10, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. What comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That's the issue. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. And these are what defile a person. The problem is your heart. Your hearts are vile. It's in your hearts. We can try to keep a lid on our mouth or zip our lip or shut it, but we can't. It's like having heartburn. You ever had heartburn? 
There's only one way out when you have heartburn. It like goes up your throat and you burp. I mean, that's kind of graphic. I know. I'm sorry. But isn't that the case? Have you ever had it? If not, it's coming. Believe me, with age, maybe. My first case of heartburn, I was in Louisiana visiting a friend. And this friend's, uh, one of my friends planted a church there. So we were there with them and the church like made legit um, crawfish and shrimp jambalaya. Like, not like California kind. I mean, legitimate kind. With like the whole shrimp in there and the whole crawfish in there. And I pull out the shrimp. I'm like, shrimp don't have eyes. What is this? I don't understand. <laughs> pull those off. I'm like, okay. So I'm like eating it and loving it. And there's like sausage in there and peppers and all this stuff. And I'm loving it. I'm eating it. And I go to sleep that night. And I wake up at like midnight, one in the morning. And I'm on fire. My mouth is on. And I'm just like sitting up. I'm like, oh my gosh. Did they? I think they poisoned me. I think I'm dying. I think... <laughs> And you know how everything is worse when you wake up from sleep? Like, everything is worse. I'm dying. Everything, they, they poisoned me. I, I, this is it. I'm, I'm going to die in Louisiana. I'm going to die here after shrimp jambalaya. This is how I'm going out. And so I'm thinking this. I'm like, it's like my heart is on fire. Oh, my gosh. This is heartburn. I have heartburn. And all of a sudden, I got the visual of the commercial of a guy with his heart on fire. And then it goes up his throat and out of his mouth. I'm like, that's me right now. This is exactly what James is saying. The problem is deeper. The problem is it's your heart. What fills your heart will come out of your mouth, out of the abundance, Jesus says. What fills your heart, your mouth speaks. Like, okay, fine. How about this? What if I just don't talk? What if I take a vow of silence? You could try it. Take a vow of silence. My dad sent me a joke. Now my dad's retired, and he sends me all kinds of forwards and jokes. And they're not ever good, but this one was good, so I'm going to read to you. A guy joins a monastery. All jokes start like that, by the way. Every good joke. A guy joins a monastery, and he takes a vow of silence. And he's allowed to say two words every seven years. After the first seven years, the elders bring him in after he was like, grooming the labyrinth garden and meditating on the word and just, just, just cleaning and, and, and being silent, all this stuff, they bring him in for his two words of wisdom. And the elders look at him like, you may say your two words. And he says, cold floors. And they nod, oh, okay, okay, well, go away, go away. Seven more years pass, doing the same thing again, meditating, being silent, grooming the gorgeous gardens, doing all the stuff that he does. Another seven years pass. Elders bring him in. After 14 years here, give us your word, your two words of wisdom. And he clears his throat. <clears throat> Bad food. Like, okay, wow, okay. So they send him away again. Another seven years pass. Meditating, grooming, all this other stuff. Seven years pass. They bring him back in again. And he stands before them. It's like, what now? After so many years here are your two words. And he says, I quit. And they look at each other and they look at him and they say, well, that's not surprising. You've done nothing but complain ever since you got here. <laughs> that you could try like, okay, I'm not going to talk anymore. I'm not going to talk. Have you ever done that? The silent treatment? Like, I'm so mad I'm not going to talk. What's the first words out of your mouth after the silent treatment's done? Is it blessing? Like, okay, finally said your word. I love Jesus and I love you. That's, that's never the first word because it's deep in your heart. You could try to keep a lid on your mouth, but you can't. The problem is your heart. You've heard the saying, you kiss your mom with that mouth. James is taking this further. He's saying, you praise your God with that mouth. 
You actually praise your God who saved you with that mouth, and with the same mouth you curse people who God made in his image? You tell truth and lies out of your mouth? You are nice and you're a jerk? You bless and you curse? How can this be? And James says your heart's polluted. There might be sweetness that comes out, but what people see all the time is the bitterness because bitterness always prevails. And since the source of corruption lies deeper than our words or even our learned patterns of behavior and speech, a radical prescription is needed. We need something to cure our hearts. And without a remedy that reaches to the root and transforms our inmost desires, we're absolutely hopeless. We need our heart to change. And James gives us the wisdom for that change in verse 14. And it says this. If you are bitter, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambitions in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So how do we have the wisdom to use the right words? Our hearts must be touched and inflamed by Jesus. That's how it happens. Our hearts, your heart, must be touched by Jesus. If you're like, I can't, if, if you just look over the last week and how many times through your mouth or through email or Twitter or Facebook or whatever, blogs, whatever you do, and you just look back and go how vile your mouth is, it's not that your mouth's vile, it's that your heart is vile. And you need Jesus to rule your heart. It's not, I'm going to control myself. You cannot control yourself. You need to be touched by God. If the first sin following the fall was a sin of speech, remember we talked about that, Genesis? First sin, Adam, self-defense. It wasn't me. It's not my fault. Prideful, self-defense. It makes sense that the first act in the new creation was a renewal of the power of speech. Jesus said to the disciples right before he ascended to heaven, wait in Jerusalem for power on high. You want a real change, Peter, with your whole Satan episode? You want a real change? Wait for the power from on high. Acts chapter 2, a different fire from heaven came down and kindled new powers and gave speech, a new speech to the human tongue. Tongues of men were touched and inflamed by fire from God, and intelligibly they declared the wonderful works of God. And everybody understood them. Our heart must be touched by God. We need the power of God to touch our hearts and change the way that we talk, change the way that we see, change the way that we react and act. Your life, your heart, your tongue will live from two, one of two sources, It will be touched from heaven or touched from hell. The wisdom from above or the wisdom from below. Below, it says, is earthly, sensual, demonic, and will set the whole course of your life on fire. But above, when your heart is inflamed by God above, 
It's pure and peaceable and gentle and open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, a harvest of righteousness. So how do we get it? Well, it can't happen through you trying to control. See, the thing is this. We, we live where we, we love control. And whenever you hear a sermon, whenever we hear a message, whatever, we're like, how do I control my life? How do I just make that happen? How do I make that happen deep in my heart? And you can't control yourself because you are the problem. If you want to control yourself, the, the you factor is still there. You are trying to control yourself. And your heart's a restless evil. You can't control yourself, actually. And that's the irony of it. I'm going to control me, but you actually don't control you. Rebecca Pippert said this. It's a wonderful quote. Whatever controls us is really our God. The one who seeks power is controlled by power. The one who seeks acceptance is controlled by the people here she wants to please. We do not control ourselves. We are controlled by the Lord of our life. Jesus' ownership of our lives is not a control that manipulates us manipulates us, or takes away our dignity? Is Jesus' desire to be the Lord of our lives some little fetish of his? Why is it so important to him? You've probably heard this when you've been coming to church. Why is it so important that Jesus wants my life? I don't get it. Well, besides the fact that he deserves it because of who he is, he knows he is the only one in the universe who can control us without destroying us. He's the only one who can control you without destroying you. No one will ever love you like Jesus. The last breath Jesus breathed on this planet was for you. Jesus will meet you wherever you are, and he will help you. He's not intimidated by past failures, broken promises, or wounds. He will make sense out of your brokenness. He, but he can only begin to be the Lord of your life today, not next month, but now. And this is how we think. We will control us, but actually everything else controls us. And everything else that controls us will actually destroy us. So we need Jesus to control us. He's the only one that can handle a human heart. He's the only one that can handle a human soul without totally destroying it. He's the only one that can actually control your heart and control your mouth without destroying you, without being overbearing, without absolutely just wrecking everything. He's the only one that can do it. You and I need, ultimately, what we need is a Savior. Someone to save us from the mess we make with our hearts and with our mouths. And let me say this. If you've been wrecked by something somebody has said to you, you're living in the reality of words that your parents or your friends or your community has told you, you are this, you are this, you are this, or maybe even words that you use to shape your own self. I am this, I am this, I am this. You need a Savior. You need a Savior that will save you from the wreck that they've made and the wreck that you can actually make now because you're so wrecked. You need an intervention of a Savior that can handle your life. And what this Savior does, what Jesus does, he is the wisdom from above. You want heavenly wisdom? He is the wisdom of God, the knowledge of God, the true wisdom from above. He can touch our hearts and restore, listen, he can restore our mouths to its intended purpose. Not self-defense, not talking about us, but bringing praise to God. That is why he created our mouths. And he can touch us and restore our mouths to its intended purpose. Oh yeah, I created your mouth to bring me praise. He's the only one that can. Let's pray.
Lord, thank you, God, that you could change a human heart. You could change a soul. You could touch it and redeem it and set it on course for its intended purpose, to bring you praise, to live out our lives for the glory of God. Only you can do that. We can't do it. We can't say, okay, I'm going to clean my own life up. I'm going to stop talking this way. I'm going to be nicer to my wife. I'm nicer to my husband or nicer to my kids. We can't do it, Lord. We confess. We repent. And Lord, maybe some of us need to even ask for prayer because we can't do it. We need Jesus. And Lord, so we do repent. We repent from our words, empty words. As it says, as you said, every word will be judged. Every careless word will be judged. Or we just ask for mercy, God. We pray even right now that you'd restore our tongues to its rightful place to bring you praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.